Hey, it's Amy, and I'm popping into the feed right now to tell you that I believe we're creating something together here on Threshold. You, me, and the whole team that makes this show. We're making a meeting ground for people who want to think and feel and learn about this unbelievably fascinating and beautiful planet. It's a pretty special place in the audio landscape, but we need your support for it to grow and thrive. There are lots of ways you can help. You can make a donation and also make introductions. Mention the show to a friend or a coworker. Share an episode with your network. Your recommendation is how more people will find this community and join the conversation. Learn more about how you can help at thresholdpodcast.org. And thank you so much for listening. This season of Threshold is underwritten by the Pulitzer Center on Crisis Reporting. Where do you stand when you are out, like, when you're doing this? <laughs> I want to okay. stand next to you. We'll pretend we're on the ice. Okay, okay. Welcome to Threshold. I'm Amy Martin, and I'm inside a giant ship docked in the port of Helsinki, Finland. It's an icebreaker named Polaris, and Posse Jarvelin is the captain. It's a... Uh, Very exciting, and uh, I I like uh, icebreaking a lot, yes. We're up on the bridge at the top of the ship. It's so tall, we actually took an elevator to get here. An icebreaker is a special kind of ship designed to cut channels into sea ice so other ships can get through. They're like the offensive line of the ship world. They power through the ice, cutting pathways for research boats, oil tankers, military ships, Basically, any craft hoping to travel through polar oceans may need assistance from an icebreaker. So you can go and sit uh, there. That's your seat? Yep. The Polaris is very new. The bridge is sleek and modern with huge tinted windows. And from Posse's seat, I'm looking at dozens of screens and panels full of inscrutable switches and knobs. I feel like I'm in some sort of combination of a dentist chair and like the USS Enterprise. It's, um, whoa! Posse had pushed a button that made the chair I was sitting in roll forward and lock into place, apparently so the captain can stay right where he or she needs to be, even when the seas get rough. Like, if we were going through ice right now, what does it look like from up here? Like, what would you be seeing? I mean, is the ice piling up on either side of you? Like, what is it? (laughs) Well, it's a quite masculine job, yes, I would say. (laughs) You feel like a badass. Yes, like a badass, yes. (laughs) Tell me more. Like, what, what, how are you feeling when you're out there uh, breaking up some ice? Well, like they say in Titanic, that uh, I'm the king of the world. (laughs) You know you're in the presence of a confident icebreaker captain when he has no qualms about referencing the Titanic while standing on his ship. The whole point of an icebreaker is, of course, to break ice. And that might seem like an odd thing to do, because if there's one thing almost everyone's heard about the Arctic, it's that the sea ice is breaking up all on its own. In this episode, we're going to find out why loss of sea ice matters, not only for the animals and people that live in the Arctic, but for all of us. But we're also going to explore an aspect of this story that you might not have heard about. The melting of Arctic sea ice could actually lead to a huge economic boom in the region, in all kinds of sectors, including, somewhat ironically, ice breaking. In the long run, climate change will almost certainly be humankind's most expensive folly ever. 
But as economist John Maynard Keynes famously said, in the long run, we're all dead. And in the meantime, there's money to be made in a melting Arctic. We're going to dive into this confusing mixture of threat and opportunity on this episode of Threshold. Basically, we will have a new ocean in the world, a totally new ocean. It was always frozen, like the end of October. It no longer is. We understand the basic science here. We have got this nailed down. Uh, Climate change is real, and it is us. People sometimes don't realize how important it is to them until it's disappearing, or in some cases, unfortunately, until after it goes. You know, there are those, maybe it's too late. Well, you know, I'm an old gypsy from New York. It's never too late. Hello, Central. So we need to get a little sea ice 101 here, starting with the obvious. What is sea ice exactly? Sea ice is any form of ice that forms on the ocean. This is Mark Serez, the director of the National Snow and Ice Data Center in Colorado. Now, uh, sea ice can range from a thin veneer, you know, half an inch thick or less, up to in places maybe even 10 meters thick or more. So it's quite variable. You might have heard sea ice referred to as a polar ice cap, but that sort of makes it sound like a fixed stationary thing. Actually, sea ice changes dramatically with the seasons. It grows in the winter when the Arctic is very cold and dark, and then dies back every summer when the region gets pounded by nonstop sunlight. And, Mark says, sea ice moves. It's not just some featureless slab. The sea ice is in constant motion um, under the influence of winds and ocean currents. Those currents send the ice around the Arctic along fairly predictable routes. It gets pushed out of the Arctic in some places and piles up in others. And while all of this is happening, the sea ice is also aging. Now how this works is this. Uh, Let's say we have a big open water area in the Arctic. Well, fall comes along and sea ice forms. Some of that sea ice that forms in the autumn is just going to melt away the next summer. But some of it will survive. It'll make it through the summer intact and then harden and grow in the fall when the sea starts to freeze up again. That makes it second year ice. If it survives another year, it becomes third year ice, etc. And as the ice ages, it gets thicker and stronger. Mark says the whole combination of age classes and thicknesses in a certain area is known as an ice regime. And if a group of climate scientists hasn't already formed a metal band under that name, all I can say is, you're welcome. So ice is always forming in the Arctic. We're always melting ice in the Arctic uh, during the summer. But some of it's always being exported as well. And if we thought of a, a steady climate, there would be just an overall balance between these processes over a number of years. You lose some sea ice every summer, you gain some back every winter, but the total amount of sea ice stays more or less stable. But what we're seeing now is that that balance has been disrupted. One of the ways scientists can see this is by measuring sea ice extent, the total surface area covered by ice. The extent is dropping. Since the the dawn of the modern satellite record, uh, 1979, it's decreasing in all months. In September especially, September is the end of the melt season in the Arctic, and that's when the biggest trends have been occurring, something like 13% per decade. It's tremendous. But that's not the only thing scientists are watching carefully these days. There's very, very strong evidence that the ice cover is also thinning as well. Everything we look at is saying it's thinning. 
as we warm the climate, Arctic ice regimes are getting younger and weaker. Basically, it's getting so warm now that it's hard to form all this really old, thick, multi-year ice. And some of that old, thick, multi-year ice uh, just melts away, and some of it is exported out of the Arctic Ocean, but we really can't regenerate it anymore. So if you think of the Earth as a cupcake and the sea ice as the frosting, what Mark's saying is that less and less of the top of that cupcake is getting frosted each year, and the frosting layer is getting thinner and thinner. Or, in more technical terms, smaller surface area, less volume. And that means... The health of the ice cover is not very good. And this is a big deal for lots of reasons. One of the most important is something called albedo. And whether or not you've heard that word, you're almost certainly familiar with this concept from your own experience. If you're wearing a dark shirt on a bright sunny day, you can feel it absorbing the heat from the sun. A lighter colored shirt keeps you cooler. And if you think of this on a planetary scale, for all of human history, the sea ice in the Arctic has been a big white shirt, a giant reflective shield bouncing heat away from us. That's albedo. Well, if we think about what's, what sea ice is, it's one of the higher albedo surfaces of our planet. And when it comes to albedo in the Arctic, it's what happens to sea ice in the summertime that really matters, of course, because that's the only time the polar north gets any significant sunlight. So if the Arctic can hold on to that white sea ice during the summer months, it can reflect a lot of that solar energy back out into space. But if a ton of ice melts away in the summer and the Arctic turns into mostly dark blue open ocean, a lot of that heat gets absorbed instead, adding more warmth to the climate. Basically, as we melt the Arctic sea ice, we're turning what was a heat shield into a heat sponge. And you can probably already see the feedback loop here. Less sea ice means a weaker albedo, which in turn leads to more warming, which leads to more ice loss, and on and on. So it has a big effect, a very strong effect on our planet. And sea ice does tons of other stuff for us too. It helps to keep the jet stream moving, which affects weather across the Northern Hemisphere. It has a big impact on the circulation of the Atlantic Ocean. Honestly, it would probably take several episodes to describe all of the ways sea ice affects the planet, but the key takeaway for each of those processes is the same. Just like permafrost, sea ice is providing a lot of services for us. And as we warm up the planet, we're making it harder for the ice to do that work on our behalf. Trying to predict when we'll have our first ice-free summertime in the Arctic has become something of a macabre guessing game. But whether it's in five years or 50, it looks quite likely that that's where we're headed. Oh, we ain't got a barrel of money. Maybe we're ragged. I like the old stuff. Funny, but we'll travel along and singing a song. At the moment was my idol. Side by side. I'm now in Nome, Alaska with Richard Benville. B-E-N-E-V, like Victor, I-L-L-E. First name Richard. And I'm mayor of Nome. All and that's right. a kick in the ass. Nome is a town of about 3,800 people sitting on the southern side of the Seward Peninsula, the knob of land that sticks out into the Bering Sea toward Russia, way out on Alaska's western coast. Nome was a gold rush boom town, and it still feels kind of wild westy, with lots of bars and streets that turn into gravel roads as soon as you leave the main drag. 
Richard grew up in a completely different reality. He was born in New Jersey and spent a lot of time in New York City. He's giving producer Nick Mott and me a tour in his van. My ambition all my life been the theater. I'm a song and dance man. Give me a <laughs> microphone, a top hat, and a pair of tap shoes. I started tap dancing when I was six. Hello, Central. <laughs> That's his catchphrase. Richard says he was an up-and-comer in the New York theater scene in his youth, but he had a drinking problem, so his family intervened and sent him to live with his brother in Alaska. And Richard never left. He spent the last 36 of his 73 years in the state. He founded a tourism company, led popular after-school programs for the kids of Nome for decades, and he was elected mayor in 2015. This is a cool town. This is a really cool town. And it's a cool time to be mayor because so many exciting things are happening. Like and we'll what? talk about the opening of the Arctic, then we could start there. When you say um, the opening of the Arctic, what do you mean? You ask what's happening? What's happening is the increased accessibility of going through the Bering Straits for a longer period of time each year because of climate change and the opening up of what is referred to by many as a new ocean. And that would be the Arctic. More ships of almost every type are coming to the Arctic, including cruise ships. When you think of cruising worldwide, for many, many years it was pretty much the Mediterranean and equatorial. Well, that's changed. And it's changed because of a number of things, but most importantly, climate change. Richard says cruise ships have been coming to Nome for at least 20 years, but these days there are a lot more and they're bigger. If people can get there, they'll go. Tourism according to Dickey. <laughs> Some Arctic communities aren't very excited about the increasing cruise traffic. Many of the ships carry groups of people several times larger than the populations of the towns they stop in. One person on the Norwegian island of Svalbard told me about how cruisers tend to walk in and out of her home as if it were a shop or a museum. And ships can bring other problems too pollution and disturbances to wildlife, but they also bring a lot of money, and Richard welcomes the ships to Nome with open arms. It's an opportunity for us to shine not just Nome, but the region. Richard wants to deepen Nome's port so more big ships can dock there, and he's hopeful those ships will bring more than tourists. He sees a future with Nome as a major way station, with Arctic ship traffic driving a growth in population and jobs and prosperity. He's not blind to the downsides of losing Arctic sea ice. But as mayor of Nome, his focus is helping his community. And if he can harness the forces of climate change to do that, he will. Now we have a cruise that begins in Seward, Alaska, comes up, spends, as I say, you know, 800 people come to tea, <laughs> and, uh, and then goes on across Northwest Passage, Greenland, and down the eastern coast, Nova Scotia, all of that, and then ends in New York City. Well, now that really is an interesting thing. He's talking about a ship called the Crystal Serenity. In 2016, it carried 1,700 passengers and crew from Anchorage, Alaska to New York City in 32 days. It was the first large cruise ship to navigate the Northwest Passage, the fabled route that goes north over Alaska and cuts through the vast high Arctic Canadian archipelago. And the Serenity did that trip again the next year. Nome was one of the first stops on both of those journeys, and Richard finds the whole thing very exciting. Do you think you'll ever get on that boat and go back to New York? Oh, I definitely more than I'd like to do than 
then go back and to arrive in New York uh, on the Serenity or on the big cruise. Uh, no, they would just thrill me to death. Are you kidding? I love. First of all, I love ships. Secondly, New York car was about a kick in the butt. Hello, Central. Uh, and thirdly, then go back to New York where I once lived. Yeah, this I would be very excited. If that happens, I want to come document the mayor of Nome meeting the mayor of New York City. But you know, this, we're mayors here. And we you're have, a New Yorker. Isn't and I'm a New Yorker. You know. <laughs> but Richard is just as much of a Nome as a New Yorker. And above all else, he is a performer. And one thing every performer knows is that come hell or high water, the show must go on. You know, I love the role from Cabaret in the opening. What a wonderful opening for an actor. Black stage, spotlight, drum roll, and then white face and a white tux and a, and a cutaway tails. Comes down with my cane and... Welcome and bienvenue. Welcome. It seems worth mentioning that the musical Cabaret was based on a novella called The Berlin Stories, set in early 1930s Germany. A review of that book in the LA Times describes it this way, the offbeat vagabonds the narrator meets are lost in hedonistic pursuits, oblivious to the horror massing on the horizon. Cabaret, oh cabaret, do cabaret. We'll have more after this short break. There is approximately 130 icebreakers uh, in the whole world, and around two-thirds of those have been designed and built in Finland. Welcome back to Threshold. I'm Amy Martin, and I've returned to Finland. I'm talking to Tero Vaurste. He's the CEO of Artia, a state-owned company which owns and operates nine icebreakers, including the Polaris, which I was touring at the beginning of this episode. Taro says this country of just five and a half million people makes more icebreakers than any other nation. So we dare to say that we are the world champion in icebreaking. Not in ice hockey, not every year, but in icebreaking. And the icebreaker industry is growing, thanks in large part to climate change. There are now new areas and new types of operations which can be conducted with the help of an icebreaker, which were more or less uh, impossible 20, 30, 40 years ago. I met Taro in Arctia's floating office building in the heart of Helsinki, right next to where the Polaris was docked. He's a high-energy man of 50. In addition to running Arctia, he's the chairman of the Arctic Economic Council. That's kind of like an international chamber of commerce for the Arctic. They promote and facilitate business development in the polar north. And Taro says for people looking to make money in the Arctic, the future is bright. There will be definitely new opportunities uh, for investors, new opportunities for the global value chain thinking in here. The melting of Arctic sea ice is stimulating growth in many industries, and shipping is one of the big ones. Taro says there are three main shipping routes that are opening up in the Arctic. Which are the Northern Sea Route going uh, along the Russian coast, the Northwest Passage going through the Canadian archipelago, and the so-called Polar Route. So let's break those three routes down for a minute here. Let's call route number one the Northwest Passage. That's the one Richard Benville was excited about over on the North American side of the globe. Route number two is the Northern Sea Route. It skirts the Russian coastline and goes up and over the Scandinavian peninsula. You can think of it as a way to connect Asia to Europe without having to go around India and through the Suez Canal. 
And depending on where you launch and land, the northern sea route can be several thousand miles shorter and 10 to 15 days faster than that traditional southern path. The third route Taro mentioned is the transpolar sea route, which cuts more or less straight across the top of the world. It won't really become usable until or unless we have consistently ice-free summers in the Arctic Ocean, but in the meantime, traffic on the other two routes is on the rise, especially on the Northern Sea Route. And that means a greater demand for icebreakers. Absolutely. So uh, I'm often asked that, well, the ice is melting, who needs icebreakers? But it's actually vice versa. Yeah, there is less ice, but it doesn't mean that the conditions get easier. They actually uh, are more variable. Given the fact that we are losing so much sea ice, when we break the ice with the ice breaking ships, does it actually accelerate the melting of ice? So it depends on the conditions, but this type of environmental impact uh, is marginal. Taro says the channels that the icebreakers open up generally refreeze pretty quickly. What's much more significant, he says, is the waste the ships can generate and the specter of an oil spill. The volume of goods being moved along the northern sea route has been growing by millions of tons every year, and many of those ships use or carry heavy fuel oil, which releases a particularly nasty form of carbon into the atmosphere and would be extremely hard to remove from frigid Arctic waters in the event of a spill. There will be increase uh, in the transit traffic, increase in tourism, and of course the great investment potential, which is uh, worth uh, $1 trillion. $1 trillion is spread around the Arctic. In 2008, the U.S. Geological Survey released a report that said that the Arctic holds 30% of the world's undiscovered natural gas and that it's the biggest area of unexplored petroleum left on the planet. Countries and companies around the world are eyeing those deposits, trying to figure out if or when or how it'll become economically feasible to go after them. Some of that oil and gas is onshore, but a lot of it is under the sea. In Canada, there's currently a ban on offshore oil and gas development in the Arctic. President Obama instituted a similar ban, which was then overturned by President Trump. In fact, as we were preparing this episode for release, the U.S. Department of the Interior gave provisional approval for the Liberty Energy Project off the north slope of Alaska. There's more permitting that needs to be done, but if the project goes forward, it'll be the first oil to be extracted from U.S. Arctic federal waters. But the biggest investment potential is uh, in, in the Russian areas. About 20% of the Russian GDP is, uh, is coming from the Arctic areas. Russia is already extracting huge amounts of natural gas in northern Siberia, then liquefying it, putting it into tankers, and shipping it out along the northern sea route bound for Europe and Asia. And fossil fuels aren't the only resources in the Arctic. There are also minerals and metals, including the rare earth metals that are used in our cell phones and computers. And Taro says there's potential for developing renewable energy in the Arctic, too. The common thinking is that, well, this is an issue which is related to oil and gas. Yes, it is one part, but uh, it's not the whole story. Still, the prospect of all of this development raises some questions. Do you feel like uh, there's a danger of profiting off of this kind of well, global that, disaster? That's what everybody tries to put me to. But I'm not going there. Because I'm saying that the Arctic is not a park to be preserved, nor it's a dirty area where big and nasty companies conduct their dirty business. But it's an area where you need to have a holistic approach on whatever you do. 
I asked Tara what he meant by a holistic approach, and he said it meant thinking about environmental impacts and the people who live in the Arctic, not just profit. But is there a holistic, environmentally sound way to ramp up extraction of oil and gas? There are certainly ways to drill that are more or less damaging. But even if we don't spill a drop of oil during the extraction process, once we drill it, we burn it. And that damages the Arctic and, of course, the rest of the planet. We have to bear in mind that the developments in the Arctic are mainly a result of human activities outside the Arctic. So the actions to be taken to make sure that the Arctic will not be damaged totally had to take place outside the Arctic. And this is an issue which is so often forgotten that uh, we need to work uh, on the Paris uh, Climate Agreement goals and other environmental goals. But the main actors and the main problems are definitely not coming from, from the Arctic areas. That's true. As a region, the Arctic has contributed a very small proportion of climate warming emissions. But that's largely because it's been frozen, which has kept the population low and limited the very sort of development from which Arctia and many other companies are now poised to profit. And it only takes a quick glance around the globe to see that when oil and gas are found, conflict often follows. Already, there have been troop increases, military base expansions, and other forms of saber-rattling in the north. The Arctic is a place where climate change and geopolitics are just becoming incredibly intertwined. Again, Mark Serez. Remember Vladimir Putin some time ago had a couple of submersibles going down and putting a Russian flag at the bottom of the Arctic Ocean to claim it as theirs, right? It's the sort of thing that has people concerned because uh, it's this brave new world up there in the Arctic. So it is becoming more accessible as we lose the ice cover, and uh, we'll see if that development is uh, peaceable or not. There are reasons to hope that this development could be peaceable. An intergovernmental forum called the Arctic Council has been working for decades to that end. This is a different organization from the Arctic Economic Council that Taro Vauerste leads. If that's the Chamber of Commerce for the Polar North, the Arctic Council is kind of like a mini UN. All eight Arctic countries are part of it, along with six indigenous organizations. And the members of the council collaborate on a big range of scientific projects. And they've made agreements to help each other out on search and rescue missions and potential oil spills. This kind of work isn't flashy. It's a lot of meetings and memos and long reports, and it's not going to stop the development of the Arctic. But it does hold some promise for a mutually agreed-upon set of rules. And some high-ranking Arctic officials have even suggested the region could become something of a demonstration project for how countries can work together to solve climate change. But that would mean leaving massive oil and gas deposits untapped. Mark Serez says it comes down to facing a very fundamental fact— we built an entire society around fossil fuels. But what we didn't really understand, or maybe did not want to understand, is that it's a trap. When you say that, it's that, that our fossil fuel society is a trap, can you explain a little bit more what you mean by that? Oh, I mean, uh, obviously it's a trap because uh, incredible amount of energy in a lump of coal or a gallon of gasoline, and we've built a whole society around that. All our buildings, our cities, everything, okay? The trap is that we're changing the very nature of our atmosphere and changing our very climate. That's the trap. 
And even as we become aware of this trap that we've set for ourselves, we can't seem to resist stepping further and further into it. We've talked about feedback loops involving permafrost and albedo. Well, this is the human version of that same concept. As we warm the planet by burning fossil fuels, it's allowing us to access more of those same fossil fuels, which, if we drill and burn, will create more warming. And although we might wrangle and even fight over who owns what in the Arctic for the next several decades, in a few centuries, all of that will really just be a footnote to the big story here. If we continue to melt the Arctic sea ice, we're heading for a radically different planet. It'll have a much less stable climate and probably much less stable human societies. Good ice all the time, really not good ice anymore. This is David Levitt. He's 88 years old. And for him, this connection between loss of sea ice and cultural disruption isn't theoretical, and it's not in the future. It's now. We'll meet him and other Arctic hunters next time on Threshold. Our production partners for Season 2 of Threshold are Montana Public Radio and PRI's The World. Our reporting was funded by the Pulitzer Center on Crisis Reporting and the Park Foundation. Threshold is made by Nick Mott, Rachel Kramer, Cheryl Skibicki, and me, Amy Martin, with help from Frank Allen, Jackson Barnett, Josh Burnham, Michael Connor, Rosie Costin, Matt Herlihy, Rachel Klein, Zoe Rome, Nora Sachs, Maxine Spire, and Zach Wilson. Special thanks to Lassie Hananen, Andres Yato, Michael Kotis, Renee Setterman, Jim White, and Tom Yulesman. Our music is by Travis Yost. One of the best ways to understand what's going on with Arctic sea ice is to watch it change from space. If you want to do that, we've got links to some great satellite pictures and videos on our website. And while you're there, we hope you'll consider casting your vote for Threshold by making a financial contribution to our show. You can give monthly, you can make a one-time donation, however you want to do it, and whatever amount fits your budget, we are so grateful for your support. Just go to thresholdpodcast.org and click donate. Donate.